It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. And Happy New Year. We, uh, we all made it. <laughs> we made it through 2020, and now we're here on the other side looking forward to great things. Um, I hope that all our dreams come true, all our wishes come true, or at least some of them. Um, we need a little bit of... Um, of a boost here in this year. Um, today we're going to be talking about emotional abuse, which you're all very familiar with. Um, while physical abuse is an attack on the body, emotional abuse is a deep and insidious assault on the psyche and the soul. It causes the victim to question the, the truth about his or herself to doubt one's worthiness as a person, one's ability to satisfy a partner, even the capacity to love. Today's special guest, Beverly Engel, is an internationally recognized psychotherapist and an acclaimed advocate for victims of toxic relationships and sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. She is the author of 23 self-help books, including three best-selling books on emotional abuse, The Emotionally Abusive Relationship, The Emotionally Abused Woman, and Encouragements for the Emotionally Abused Woman. Um, Beverly is a licensed marriage and family therapist and has been practicing psychotherapy for 40 years. And she is also the author of the forthcoming book, Escaping Emotional Abuse, Healing from the Shame You Don't Deserve. And it is that book that we will be talking about today. Um, Beverly shares the five-step program she offers in her therapy practice, which has helped her victims overcome the shame of emotional abuse and will also serve as a guide for anyone who provides services to the emotionally abused. That is absolutely true. Very good book. Good morning, Beverly. Welcome. Oh, good morning to you. Thank you. We're so excited to have you here today. Um, this is our speak. You're talking our language here, and uh, we all need to hear what you have to say. So you say, you, you talk about shame. You say that shame is by far the most destructive aspect of emotional abuse, and it can be the most difficult to heal, that people don't connect with their shame in a way they connect with their anger or their sadness or their fear. Why is this emotion so misunderstood? Well, we don't, we don't feel shame in a, in a physical way that much. I mean, we can get, you know, we get flushed. Our face may get flushed red or we can have a sinking feeling. Uh, Our posture can show shame by, you know, if we're, if our shoulders are slumped and we're looking down but we don't usually experience shame as a feeling per se. Um, what we experience are the symptoms of shame. 
uh, and people just don't know the symptoms, so they don't connect the two. Uh, but feelings of self-hatred and self-loathing, uh, self-destructiveness, uh, self-neglect, and that just includes, you know, just not taking care of yourself, um, reenacting sexual abuse or childhood abuse, uh, addictive behaviors, rage, isolating, uh, just feeling really depressed and confused, um, lack of motivation, feeling hopeless and helpless. Um, people just don't necessarily connect all those symptoms with the emotion of shame. That's so true. And in addition to that, they suffer shame from the outside world as well, from people who don't understand it and say the wrong things. From Absolutely. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps, perhaps mental health um, professionals that say the wrong thing, that don't understand it. This is such a, a niche kind of, um, of issue, and it, is, it needs to be handled with kit gloves. And it needs right. to be well understood. Uh, so you developed a shame reduction program to help your clients with the shame. What are the five major avenues that you use for reducing debilitating shame? Well, the first step is uh, kind of an emotional abuse reprogramming. People who are emotionally abused um, are like brainwashed. Um, they're brainwashed to believe that their partner is always right. Uh, that he or she is the expert, he or she is the teacher, and that they should listen to and believe everything their partner says. Um, and there's lots of other aspects of brainwashing that go on. So there's actually just like a reprogramming aspect to the shame reduction program. Um, they need to stop giving their partner so much power. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but it is a mindset, you know, to to stop believing your partner is always right. Um, stop believing your partner. When your partner is, we have hear a lot about gaslighting. When your partner's gaslighting you, you don't necessarily know it in the moment, but you can know when you don't really feel like what he's saying is true or she, um, th that you feel, you know, confused because, wait a minute, I thought that this happened and he's telling me this happened. Wait a minute, that doesn't feel right. So it's also a, a process of reconnecting with yourself and trusting your own feelings, trusting your own intuition, and not giving all that power to your partner. So there's a reprogramming aspect is, the st is step one. Um, step two is anger expression. Most people who are being emotionally abused have a problem with expressing their anger. Uh, either they grew up in a household where... Uh, people didn't express their anger or they did express their anger, but very inappropriately. Uh, if you grew up around a person who was raging and who went from zero to 10 uh, with their anger, then you're going to be afraid probably that, that's, that you're going to become a rager, that you're not going to be able to control your anger, that you're going to become abusive. And so people who grew up in that environment kind of don't trust their anger and don't feel like it's safe to express their anger. Um, so there's lots of obstacles to anger expression. And I work toward getting those, those obstacles out of the way because anger is very empowering. If, if released in the right way, it's very empowering and you need to feel empowered 
if you're going to either confront your partner or work toward leaving your, an abusive partner. Um, step three is self-compassion. This is a huge process. It takes a lot of time. Most people who are being abused don't have self-compassion. And self-compassion is simply being able to feel and acknowledge your own suffering. Uh, we can have a lot of compassion for other people um, and not have no compassion for ourselves. So I just ask that you take that compassionate nature that you probably have and apply it to yourself. And it may be so foreign to you that you may need to think about a compassionate person in your life, someone who's been kind to you, someone who's been understanding, and think about how they've treated you and think about even how they've spoken to you and kind of mimic that because, again, abuse victims very often didn't experience much compassion growing up uh, from others, and they just don't even know how to express it toward themselves. Um, the fourth step is self-forgiveness, and that includes forgiving yourself from, from maybe your rages when you finally reach your limit, forgiving yourself for drinking too much as a way of coping with the abuse, forgiving yourself for all the ways that you've adjusted to this abusive behavior of your partner, uh, and you know, understanding that it's understandable that you would have reacted the way you have. And then the last one is self-kindness, which is the hardest one uh, to really, it really present, I really present a program to teach you how to be kind to yourself. So it's a pretty comprehensive program. Oh my gosh, I, I completely agree. I mean, you definitely hit on all the um, the major aspects of this and the major aspects of healing from this. Um, and um, I like that you acknowledge the word brainwashing because um, I totally agree with you that there is brainwashing and that it does have to be undone, deprogrammed in a sense. Uh, some people don't like to use that word, but I think it's absolutely appropriate in this situation. Um, yeah. You talked about anger. Um, anger is so misunderstood. And I think that um, people who have been victimized this way, and we're going to talk about victimization, but people who have been victimized this way have a right, a right to be angry at what happened to them. Um, yes. and, and so, yeah, and I think once they can let go of the compassion for others or the compassion for their abuser, I should say, um, and get angry for what happened to them, that's when they get empowered. Um, you were talking about taking that compassionate nature and applying it to um, themselves. And yes, I completely agree with that. Uh, I have to, you know, when I'm working with clients, um, they always change the focus to other people. Oh, now that I've learned this, I really want to save somebody. I really want to help yes. my brother. I really want to help my sister. I re I'm like, you haven't helped yourself yet. Yes. Bring the focus back to you. So that's another thing. Um, yes, so absolutely. the self-forgiveness, the self-kindness, these are so important. Um, and you talked about the reaction, feeling um forgiving yourself for reacting to the abuse. Uh, so many people do express that, well, I wasn't a perfect person. Well, right, yes. you weren't. 
But in most cases, you were reacting, not acting. So, um, yes, great, great topics. That's a great uh, point. Yeah. Um, why do you, and I understand this, but why do you use the word victim instead of survivor in your book? Well, I talk about this in my introduction. Um, I always want to empower people who, be, who are being abused. And for some people, the word victim is a very loaded word and it, does, it feels disempowering. But my point of view is that you are being a victim if you're being emotionally abused. You can become a survivor if you are able to either confront your partner or end the relationship. Then you become a survivor. But while you're in an emotionally abusive relationship, you are a victim. And in our country, victim has become a dirty word. Um, But if you think about it, if your house is robbed, you're a victim of robbery, okay? And there's there's no negative connotation to that. You're not shamed because your house was robbed. You're not blamed for having your house robbed. I mean, unless you just left all your doors wide open and had a sign, come on in, you know, you, you are not to blame when somebody steals your car or, or robs your house. And we don't shame those kind of victims, but we shame victims of any kind of abuse. We make the assumption that you did something wrong or you wouldn't have been abused. And that's just not right. That you, people don't do anything to cause their emotional abuse. They don't, you know, they're not at fault. It's not, they don't have a part in it. Okay, so I use the word victim deliberately to help people see that they are being victimized. And yes, obviously, we want you to become a survivor, but that's a process. You're right. You're right. And and I agree. You know, people will see, usually say to me, well, I spent my life trying to not be a victim. <laughs> You know, I don't want to, I want to take responsibility. And that's really one of the things that abusers know about us is that we take responsibility for um, the things that we do wrong. So they can turn it all around on us. But, um, but this is victimization. Right. So it's not about having a victim mentality, but it's about understanding that this is a victimization situation. So Yes, so important. Yeah. And right. And once you're out of it, you are a survivor. So um, I completely agree with that. Absolutely. You say um, that emotional abuse creates a prison for victims because they know they're mistreated. um, But they have a really hard time ending this relationship. And it's there's like this confusion. They feel they feel trapped, but they don't want to leave. They can't tolerate living with the person one more day, but can't believe they, but don't believe they'd ever live without the person. Um, they know everything would be better when they leave, but they're afraid that it'll be worse. I mean, these are such conflicting uh, things that victims Absolutely. go through. Can you speak to that? Yes. Yes. Um, I call it a prison of confusion, too. Uh, because it's a prison of shame, but it's also a prison of confusion. Because as you just mentioned, uh, abusers are experts at confusing their victims. Um, they turn things around. And you mentioned, you know, that victims are very, very often very compassionate. Uh, uh, abusers will use that compassion against them. Like, say, for example, you know, um, 
you finally get up enough nerve to confront your abuser and say, you know, when you did this, it, I felt like this, and, you know, would you please stop doing that? He, will, he or she will be able to twist that around and turn that around and name the one time in your whole life that maybe you did the same thing. Okay, well, you do this too. You, you know, you're accusing me of lying, but your sister called the other day and you didn't want to talk to her and you told me to tell her that you weren't home. So you lie too. So they'll just take the smallest thing that maybe you've done, exaggerate it, and make you feel like a hypocrite because you're calling them on their problem. Okay, so they're just so good at twisting things around that emotional abuse victims usually live in in a horrible state of confusion about doubting themselves, doubting that they have the right to complain, doubting that they have a right to feel the way they do, uh, questioning whether or not everything is their fault. And, of course, they do feel like everything is their fault. Uh, So, yeah, it's really very confusing for a victim of emotional abuse. Uh, and they feel imprisoned by it, like you you mentioned so at so well. There's a conflict going on for everything they want to do. They also feel the opposite. You know, I can't stand to be with this person one more day, but I can't live without him. So yes, it's very confusing, and and that's part of the whole problem is that they're so confused. Yes, it is, and even when they get out when they finally find the courage to get out, they still go through this. Um, oh, and yeah. it's very, it's very painful. It's very painful because they question, did they do the right thing? Should they go back? Also, um, they tend to think that what they had was as bad as it was. It's better than what would be what they're going to have because they can't right. see that life can be better than this. So they're, almost willing to, to satisfy that pain inside to stay with this, to deal with it. Yes. Yeah. It's, yes. Um, it's, uh, it's so, so, this is such a horrible thing that happens and it's so epidemic. What a shame. What a shame. Yes, um, absolutely. So um, you talk about some forms of emotional abuse and, um, you know, like being humiliated, being dismissed. Can you name some things that are forms of emotional abuse? Yes. Um, most, most emotional abuse is also a form of shaming. And it takes the, takes the form of uh, very often being humiliated. The abuser often humiliates their victims in front of other people. They really like to do that. Um, like, how could you have forgotten to get the cake? You know, what kind of mother are you? Um, they, they're being, they, they're, they are dismissive. You know, oh, that's a ridiculous idea. Um, there's a form of emotional abuse called being diminished. Uh, yeah, you won the contest, but there were only a, two other contestants. Big deal. You know, being belittled, being degraded, being ridiculed, like, oh, poor baby, you don't feel good. Do you need a bottle? You know, mm-hmm. really being ridiculed, um, mm-hmm. exposing your mistakes, never letting you forget when you've made a mistake, always throwing it back in your face, um, comparing you with others in a really negative way, uh, constantly making you wrong, being impossible to please. That's a big one. It's really hard to, to please an abuser. You try and try and try and do the right thing. And they will still find fault in what you've done, or you didn't do it long enough, or you didn't do it well enough. 
Um, and gaslighting, I mentioned gaslighting. I think we all know what it is by now since we've heard it in politics so long for the last four years. But gaslighting came from the movie called Gaslight in which the a man married a wealthy heiress and he went about trying to make her feel crazy or trying to make her crazy so that he could take, so he could take over her estate. And what he did was in those days, the houses were lit by with gas lights. It was literally that they used gas to, to light the house. And so he would do things like lower, dim the gas light, dim it. And she would say, what's going on with the lights? You know, this, it's, they keep dimming. And he would say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that's a perfect example of gaslighting. Something's going on. You can see it. You can feel it. You can hear it. And the abuser will say, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. Or you're exaggerating. Or you're making it up. So that's gaslighting. Um, emotional blackmail is another, another form. And that often comes, comes in, the, in the form of sexual pressure. Um, and what's important for us to talk about sexuality. Um, emotional abusers also can be sexual abusers. Uh, or they can pressure and make so many demands on sex that it becomes abusive. Uh, and they will even say things like, if you're not willing to do so and so, I'll find somebody who will. And that's a form of emotional abuse mm-hmm. or emotional blackmail, rather. Um, so if you don't do what I want, I'm going to do so and so. And emotional abusers will all, often demand that you get involved with them in certain certain ways, maybe ways that you're are, are repulsive to you or activities that you don't want to get involved with. But there's always the threat that if you don't do it, somebody else will. They'll go off and have an affair and they'll feel like they're justified. So those are some forms of emotional abuse. That last one, I hear, you know, and that's, that's a source of shame for so many survivors that um, they did things in the bedroom that, just yeah. went against their morality and it was so disgusting to them, but they felt like they had to. It's awful. Yes. Um, so uh, you talk about uh, one of the forms of physical behavior that can be considered emotional abuse, and that is called symbolic violence. Can you explain to us, or would you please explain to us what symbolic violence is? Yeah. Most emotional abuse is non-physical. But symbolic violence is the exception. Um, It can be emotionally abusive to just shake your finger at someone or make a fist and and shake the fist in your face or to put a fist through a wall. Uh, Those are symbolic violence. What those gestures are saying is, you better do what I say or I'm going to hit you. Or you better do what I say or you're really going to be in trouble. So it's the threat of physical violence that comes through with symbolic violence. Right. Sometimes they'll threaten the animal, you know, or whatever. Punch a hole Mm -hmm. in the wall. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um. I have told you before we got on, I have so many pages flagged. I'm just going through it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Some of the tactics, let's see, the tactics of emotional abuse. Here's a list 
of all the forms of emotional abuse in alphabetical order. And um, so there's a bunch of them, but let's just talk about a few of them. Let's talk about um, abusive expectations. What is abusive expectations? Well, that's when your partner just makes demands of you that are impossible to achieve. Um, you know, you have to you have to look a certain way. You have to always be perfect. You have to, you know, greet their friends a certain way. You have to cook a certain way. They just have unreasonable demands, um, unreasonable expectations of how you should behave. Expectations that no human being can can meet, uh, and they're like I said, they're impossible to please. So no matter how hard you try, you know they criticize you in the beginning of the relationship that you know you weren't a good cook. So you took cook, cooking courses, and you now you cook wonderful meals, but it's still not okay. You know now you're cooking with too much salt, or now you're not cooking healthy enough in some other ways. Uh, they'll always find something wrong with what you're doing. Um, character assassination, constantly blaming, uh, blowing someone's mistakes um, out of proportion, humiliating, criticizing. Um, yeah. And they usually do that in front of other people, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, character assassination is they're deliberately trying to make you look bad in front of other people. And that can be carried to an extreme where they actually talk behind your back or talk to your relatives and tell your relatives things that aren't true that you've done. I had one client who constantly went to his wife's parents and complained that she was having affairs and she wasn't. Mm -hmm. And he eventually was able to turn her own family against her because he was so good at persuading them that, you know, she was having these affairs. So, yeah, character assassination can be deadly. And I hear this all the time with narcissistic abuse survivors, that um, the parents, the family, the sisters, the brothers, they've all been turned against them, you know. And, uh-huh. um, you know, I t- usually tell people when you get out of these relationships, you need to be aware. Um, first of all, you need to tell people what's going on with you rather than keeping it a secret. But you also have yeah. to limit what you share because they are being targeted as well by your abuser. Yes. Um, let's see. We talked about it. Invasion of privacy. Oh my gosh, I hear this a lot. Uh, let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it can go, it can be as simple as them going into your into your computer and checking on, you know, who you've had contacts with uh, or going into your phone and, and, you know, spying on you. Uh, But it can become much more complex where they, they set traps or they have, um, you know, they set up some surveillance. Um, You know, it can get very, very elaborate Um, uh, going into your drawers and checking out things in your drawers, going into your file cabinet. You know, just really invading every aspect of your life to keep track of you so that they can have more ammunition against you. Um, and some abusers actually really truly do believe that you're having an affair, even when you're not. And they're not just using that as a tactic. Tactic, They really do believe it. And so they will really invade the, your privacy. You know, they will follow you in a car. Um, you know, they will 
tap your phone. They'll do all kinds of things to try to catch you at something that you're not even doing. I've heard this so many times, and my clients will say to me, it's weird because right after you and I talk or right after I say something on the phone or something like that, he's bringing it up, and he wasn't Mm -hmm. even home, you know? And so, yes, sometimes they have um, surveillance and in the house. I mean, you have to be so careful with these abusers. You can't do anything in a, in an, um, in a vicinity that they can have any control over. They track your car. Yeah. Um, I had I have right. one client who she knew her computer was hacked, um, and she took it to um, you know a forensic. Um, uh, person in somebody who knows how to take these apart, and he said, "You know, I can't go any further with this because your computer has so many, so much spyware in it that it's going to infect infect mine if I continue." So, wow. um, yeah, uh, it, <laughs> it's unbelievable. But yes, um, listeners, heed this warning. You are being don't leave things out. Heed this warning. Um, Yes. The, the Jekyll and Hyde syndrome, this is so confusing. These mood shifts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, he's he or she is one person one minute, another person another, you know, or one person in one setting and another person in another. There's different types of, of Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hyde's. I actually wrote a whole book on that. Um there, you know, sometimes the change comes because they're drinking, and we've heard this very often. Their personality changes when they're drinking, so they can be the most, the sweetest, most wonderful person when they're sober. And when they reach a certain point of, of intoxication, they become a monster. You know, they they they're putting you down. They're starting fights with people. You know, they they're physically violent. Um, they're accusing you of things. Uh, they can just be t- a totally different person when they're drinking or drugs, drinking or drugs or anything actually can can change their mood. Um, people who are who are addicted to pornography, for example, um, they will change. It will change their mood when they're using pornography. Um, so it's a person who is one way at one time and then a radically different person, not just a mild change, but a radical change. Um, sometimes it's somebody who um, presents themselves to the community, which we know about as the, you know, the pillar of the community, the great guy, the, you know, the respected person, the respected philanthropist, you know, in the community, everybody loves him. He's just a wonderful guy. And then he comes home and he's a monster with his wife and his children. That's another example of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then the family is supposed to keep that secret. Yes, absolutely. Um, You say that shame can make you feel like you're a horrible person, damaged, worthless, disgusting, that you're flawed and unworthy of love and acceptance, and you turn on yourself. Um, Yes. What um, People are totally stripped of their dignity, their humanity. Um, yes. How do they pull themselves out of something like this when they're feeling that way? 
Well, that's where the program comes in. That's where the self-compassion comes in. Uh, that's where anger expression comes in. Um, anger is um, a good remedy for shame uh, because it takes the focus off of you and you being wrong and you being bad, and it takes that anger and it, and it targets the person who's actually causing those bad feelings in you. You know, a typical abuser, it's really interesting, a typical abuser, if they're uncomfortable, if they're anxious or whatever, they automatically go outside themselves and blame somebody else. It's your fault that they're feeling anxious. It's your fault that they're feeling insecure, okay? But the typical victim is the opposite. If she's feeling anxious, if she's feeling insecure, she'll go inside and say, what have I done wrong? What's happening with me? Why am I feeling this way? She won't look outside of herself and say, well, I'm being emotionally abused. That's why I'm feeling so crappy. Okay? So, so it, it's really teaching victims to actually look outside. Look outside yourself and say, what's going on in my environment that's making me feel this way? It's the exact opposite of the way an abuser thinks. Okay? <laughs> Um, I mean, it's not the exact opposite. I'm sorry. It's the same way an abuser thinks, but now she's doing it for good reason. He always looks outside. I'm probably confused, everybody. He always looks outside for for the reason why he doesn't feel good. I'm actually encouraging victims to do the same thing. Go outside yourself and say, what's, what's wrong with this picture? Why am I feeling this bad? Um, don't feel bad about, you know, blaming him if he's really the cause of your problem. Mm -hmm. So true. So true. Is there, is there healthy shame? Mm, Happy shame? No. Healthy. No. (laughs) Healthy. Oh, healthy shame. Healthy shame. Yeah. Shame can be constructive. It's usually more guilt that can be constructive. Shame can be constructive if it's teaching us something, if it's, if we feel ashamed every time we lie, then that's a signal that we need to stop lying, okay? If we feel ashamed, if we are having an affair, then that's a sign that we need to not have the affair, even if we're unhappy at home. So it can be healthy if it's teaching us, if it's indicating that we're doing something that's not healthy for us. But shame in general most shame and the shame we're talking about here is called debilitating shame or toxic shame. It's not just a feeling in the moment. It's a state of mind. Like you said earlier, it's a state of mind. It's a feeling that in a belief that you are unworthy. It's a belief that you're unlovable. It's a belief that no one will ever want to be with you. So it's more than just a feeling in the moment. It's an overarching idea of who you are. We talked um, a lot about partnerships uh, with abusers, and um, but you do have um, you do talk about the history of abuser shaming and how um, many of these victims have suffered a heavy dose of shame before they even entered this relationship as an adult. Uh, and it's probably why um, they were so susceptible to it. Um, but 
you talk about the many ways that parents shame their children. And um, these things, when I, when I hear these things, well, first of all, um, I'm the daughter, daughter of a narcissistic mother. So when I hear these things, they just cut so deep. But um, yes. the first one is belittling. What, what do parents yes. say when they're belittling their children? Oh, the best example is, is you know, you're such a crybaby or, you know, I'm ashamed to be with you. Why, why can't you be more like Bobby? He isn't crying all the time. You know, humiliating a child, especially in public, uh, is horrible for the child's self-esteem. Mm. Um, blaming. Yeah, just, and it's not just calling a child on their behavior and, and wanting them to be responsible. It's like name calling, you stupid idiot, you should have known better than to do that. What's wrong with you? You know, if they make a mistake, you know, just going on and on about it. How could you have done that? What's wrong with you? You know, um, just constantly blaming the child for what they're doing for any kind of mistake or any kind of behavior that the parent doesn't like. Yeah. Um, if my mother even thought that we did, I mean, it could be anything that would get outside of our home. She'd say, what are people going to say? What are they going to say about yeah. this? You know, and it was always yeah. like always more worried about what other people were going to say than about the experience her child was having and helping to relieve yeah. The, the feeling that they're having instead of blaming to help them to relieve yeah. it. Um, contempt. Yeah. Contempt. Yeah. Contempt can be just a look. You know, my mother was an expert in the looks. Um, she All she had to do was contempt. The, the look of contempt is like a sneer or a raised upper lip, but it's just like looking at the child as if they're disgusting. Okay, mm-hmm. that they're just the lowest of the lows. Like, how could you? You know, what's wrong with you? Um, my mother would be like always being looking at me at, at, with an expectant look like, what are you up to now? There was mm-hmm. always the assumption that I was either going to do something wrong or I'd already done something wrong. Uh, and, and that had a, like my mother was narcissistic also. And that had a horrible effect on me. I walked around with the feeling that there was something majorly wrong with me and that people were going to see it. So mm-hmm. her, her, her looks of contempt were very, very powerful. And they sent the message that, you know, there's something majorly wrong with you. You're disgusting. And everybody else is going to see it too, was my fear. You know, I don't know if this falls under contempt, but it's also an inflection in the voice. It's, yes. they could, it's the way things are worded. And what's interesting is, um, I know narcissists do this. They word things in a way that you know you're being called on the carpet. But if you try to bring it up, it sounds benign. It sounds yeah. like yeah. nothing. Um, they're experts yeah. at, at saying things that you can never turn around and call them on because it doesn't sound yeah. right, but it's the way it's said. Um, Absolutely. Let's see. You talked about humiliation. Um, uh, disabling expectations. What are disabling expectations? 
Well, it's kind of what we've talked about already, unreasonable expectations. But for for a parent and a child, it's like expecting a child to perform at a at a level that they can't do already. It's very often expecting a child to perform, you know, at a at a age level that they're not capable of doing. Uh, my mother was guilty of that. She she didn't understand about children. She didn't understand that children spill their milk or, you know, that children do lie and exaggerate. That's just what children do. It's not, there's not something majorly wrong with the child if they spill their milk. But her expectations were disabling because I couldn't hardly move without either getting the look of contempt or getting the statement of what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Why are you always spilling your milk? Well, I didn't always spill my milk, but I did sometimes, you know? So it's it's disabling because it's expecting a child to perform at a level that it's, it, that's impossible. Sometimes it's about a parent wanting the child to uh, participate in an activity or a skill or a sport, say for example, like pushing the child too hard. Uh, like, you know, Tiger Woods is an example, how his father just pushed him beyond reason. Um, that's a disabling expectation, too. Yeah, these, you know, sometimes you see parents get irate <clears throat> at, you know, sports activities. Um, and, you know, if they're there. Uh, they're happy if the child is doing well. If the child fails, oh, boy. Um, they yeah. have, you know, they really have to pay for that. Um, right. And telling children, children you're disappointed in them. You know, you never want to say that to children. You never want to tell them. Right. You know, you can, you can not like their behavior, but to be disappointed in them as a person is so damaging, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. As, as you say, it crushes the child's spirit. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I wish we could fix this somehow. Um, let me just see. I was going to talk about the lies, but okay, yeah, let's talk about some of the lies that they would say. It's on page one hundred and fifteen, I think. Okay, yeah. Um, so this is when they create an app atmosphere of dishonesty, blaming, fault-finding, projecting, gaslighting, and scapegoating. Um, yeah. And they can be out-and-out out falsehoods, exaggerations, distortions, projections. Um, and you have a list of um, some lies that abusive people engage in. So the first one is, I'm a man, so you need to do as I say. Maybe you can read these so you don't have to elaborate on every one of them. Yeah. Um uh- now, you notice that I'm saying he or she. There are emotional abusers who are female. Oh, no, um, I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just wanting to make sure for the audience. I, I know you know. Um, but, the, um, you know, I'll continue to use he, and you probably will too, because um, the majority of, of emotional abusers and, or, you know, it's the male who's the abuser and the female who's the victim. Uh, but I do want you to everybody to know that there are absolutely uh, women who are emotionally abusive. Um, but the, the, I'm the man, so you need to do as I say. You know that goes back to our our history, our family or you know family of origin belief that if you were raised in a home where the man was the boss 
and that you were to do everything the man said, uh, and then you marry a man who has that same belief, that's lie number one, is that no matter what, you don't have to always do what your partner says just because he's a man. Um, That's hard to get past if you were raised with that belief system, Um, but it's one of the roots of emotional abuse is that, you know, I'm the man, I have the power, I make the money, I'm in charge, and you have to do as I say. That's like, that's like the, the foundation of emotional abuse is that belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if the woman is, is at home and she's not making her own money, um, that can keep a woman in an emotionally abusive relationship for a long, long time, that belief system so, and that lie. Um, line number two is I'm better than you and therefore I deserve to be treated special. That's the typical narcissist, right? Yes. You know, the, the, the narcissist truly believes that he is better than you are and that he, therefore, he's smarter, he's better, he has more rights and that you should do what he says and you should believe everything he says uh, and he's special and, you, and he deserves to be treated special. That's the narcissist motto. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it As is. As is the number three, I'm smarter than you, and therefore you should always believe everything I say. That's another <laughs> one, right? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And yes. then the and next one, I need to advise you or teach you because you aren't capable of making good decisions on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another one. Um, we know that emotional abuse often comes in the form of teaching you you know, uh, they are, they're, they've been in the world more, they're smarter than you, they make more money, um, and you, you know, you don't know anything, and so you need to listen to them, and you need to, you know, learn from them. Um, and those are, those are just all lies. And then um, five is you're too stupid or crazy to understand what you're doing. You need me to tell you when you make a mistake. Otherwise, you'll never realize it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or let's see, what are some of the other ones? You can't be trusted. I have to watch you carefully and question your every move. Um, Yeah. You you hurt my feelings or disappointed me, and now you have to make up for it. Um, yeah. And then we talked about, you know, the sexual thing. It's your responsibility as my wife, girlfriend, or husband, whatever, partner, to satisfy my every sexual need and desire. Yeah. Yes. So so they do lie. They are going to lie. These are common lies. What's interesting is they all seem to lie the same way. They all seem to have these same kind of responses. Uh, You know, I call it with the narcissist, you know, it's the narcissist um, playbook because they must all read it because they all do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. What what is exactly. your feeling? What is your feeling as to um what motivates them to all act and say the same things? Do you have a, do you have a, a perspective on that? Yeah, I do. Um and this is difficult to talk about because we know as we talked about the victims will tend to have t- tremendous compassion. And so when I say this, a lot of victims will go, well, okay, I shouldn't judge him. I shouldn't expect him to be different. But the reason why a narcissist is a narcissist is usually because they were deeply shamed growing up. Um, They were either shamed by abandonment or shamed by neglect or shamed by abuse. And what they did is they built up a defensive wall 
And they did that for the purpose of keeping out shame. I actually had a client, a male abuser, who said to me, he held his finger under his nose, and he said, I'm up to here with shame. If I take on any more shame, I'm going to drown. And that was his explanation as to why he was so defended, why he presented himself as the expert, as superior to everyone else, It was a facade. That wall is a facade. That wall keeps them from ever having to feel shame again. It doesn't really, but that's the intent. If I'm always criticizing somebody else, I don't have to worry about them criticizing me. If I'm always pushing people away with my knowledge and my expertise, I don't ever have to worry about feeling humiliated. So they build themselves up bigger than life, there's this huge, you know, balloon full of hot air in order to hide the scared, shamed little child they are inside. So it's all a big facade. It's yep. all a game. They, have, they are not at all who they present themselves to be. In fact, they have very fragile egos. They, are, they have a hard time ever accepting any responsibility for anything, much less any criticism. And it's all about avoiding shame for them. Okay. Now, yeah. given that, we can feel a lot of compassion for them. We can say, oh, my God, that's terrible that they had to build up this wall or build up this huge balloon to hide who they really are. And I should feel sorry for them because they're just a scared, shamed little boy inside No, we have to hold them accountable for their behavior. They need to go to therapy. They need to go to therapy with a therapist they can really open up with, which is hard for them, and stay in therapy for quite a while in order to be able to become vulnerable with a therapist. They they need to be able to be vulnerable and tell their story and get healing. And it takes a long time. And most of them don't stay in therapy. I have right. had some successes, um, but most don't stay in therapy because it's too scary. They're, they don't like feeling vulnerable. That's why they built up this facade in the first place. Um, so they usually stop therapy and run right back to their old behaviors. Um, but that's what's really going on with a narcissist. Mm. Well, the narc- also the narcissist cannot hear that there's anything that's imperfect about them. They cannot hear that. Right. So, so if they're in a therapist's office and the therapist is saying, you know, I diagnose you as having narcissistic personality disorder, they're going to say, you're a quack. I'm leaving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, well, or, most therapists won't do that, but <laughs> right, but right, but exactly. but yeah, they they can't ex- accept any kind of hint that there's anything wrong with them at all. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, exactly. So so a good therapist will, as you know, will you know provide acceptance for them, provide a safe place for them to open up, and once they feel safe, and once they feel they can open up. Uh, then the work can begin. But that's a huge job. That's a huge mm-hmm. job to get them to a place where they feel safe. Mm, exhausting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, in, on um, 
page 313, you have a way um, to rewire your shame memories. And I thought maybe we could, you could talk us through this because I, like, I really like this. Okay. Um, I don't have that in front of me. I'm, I'm going okay. to it. Um, why don't you say what it is? 313. So um, place your hand on your heart and breathe deeply. Okay. That one, you know what I'm talking um, about? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's very difficult, I think, for us to talk about. We can go through it, but it's um, mm. it, you, you kind of need to be there in the room with, with someone to do this. Okay. Uh, it's a wonderful practice. Um, it's um, it's kind of complicated. If, if we've, we've heard that we can actually rewire our brains, that our brain mm-hmm. is kind of more elastic than we thought, and we could rewire our brain. And there are definitely processes that can help us do that. Um, and this is one of them. Um, okay. But I okay. don't we know. Don't not, you know yeah. We don't yeah. have to do it. I just, okay. Um, yeah. Another way of sort of changing um, your memories is using oxytocin. I like this one. Um, how would we use oxytocin to make ourselves feel better? Well, self-compassion and self-kindness create oxytocin in our body. So anytime we're self-compassionate, or we're kind to ourselves, we will create that, that hormone in our body. Um, hmm. So it's self-soothing where you, you know, you um, gently, you can gently put your arms around yourself and gently stroke your arm and say things like, um, you're doing the best you can. Uh, I'm really proud of you. You've been making some changes. Um, that kind of self-kindness practice can create oxytocin. And oxytocin is just going to make you feel, it gives you a sense of, of well-being, uh, which takes away from a lot of the anxiety and stress of abuse. So um, you can, you know, talk, talk to yourself in a positive way. You can stroke your arm. Uh, you can You can... Be soothing to yourself by just giving yourself a cup of hot tea and curling up in a fetal position, putting a, a nice quilt over yourself, and just comforting yourself. Sounds nice. It really does. Yeah. Um, and the last um, point I wanted to just hit on what is the importance of validation. And um, you know, along with that, there was something I wanted to say um, earlier, and, you know, I find, and you probably find the same thing, that as soon as we validate the person, their experience, because we probably are the first person to ever fully validate it in a, in a compassionate way, um, yes. so much is lifted off their shoulders immediately. Do you find that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Most people who are being victimized were receive very little validation. Validation is just an acknowledgement that something is happening. So um, one of the best examples I have is a kid comes home from school and she's crying and she says, Mommy, I was beaten, you know, this boy beat me up at school. Uh, the mother can respond several ways. The ideal way is to say, oh, honey, I'm sorry. Come over here and let me give you a hug. That's the best way. 
okay? Um, Another good way is to say, oh, I'm sorry, that must have been very scary for you. I'm sorry that happened. She's validating. She's saying, she's feeding back the child's feeling. That's a validation. Something bad happened to you. I see it. I acknowledge it, and I acknowledge how it must feel. The third way is the worst way, and that is to say to the child, well, what did you do? What did you do to cause him to hit you? That's being invalidated, okay? Not only are you not being acknowledged that something bad happened to you, you're being blamed for it, okay? So most victims of abuse have been invalidated. They weren't encouraged to express their feelings. If they did express their feelings, it was invalidated. It was say, you, They were told, oh, you shouldn't feel like that. That's the epitome of invalidation. Oh, no, you shouldn't feel like that. So what you're saying, when if a therapist can say, I'm so sorry that happened to you, that's the compassion element. And, yes, you have a right to your feelings. Uh, anybody in your situation would feel the way you're feeling. That's validation. And that is extremely healing. And the combination of self-compassion and validation is powerful. And with narcissistic abuse, um, generally in the first conversation, they'll tell me a whole, tell me everything. They could talk for 45 minutes. And then they'll say, does any of that make sense? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. That's kind of common because they're talking about it. They're telling their truth. And then they're wondering. Yeah if it makes sense. And of course I follow right along with it because yes, it makes total sense to Mm -hmm. me. It wouldn't make sense to many people, but it makes Mm -hmm. sense to people who are aware. Um, So we have covered so much in your book. Is there anything else that you felt like like you want to share? Um, We're talking about your book, Escaping Emotional Abuse, Healing from the Shame You Don't Deserve. Was there anything else you want to share, Beverly? I just want to leave with the idea that even if you read my book, and I hope you do, and you understand that you're being emotionally abused and you understand the damage, don't shame yourself if you're not ready to leave. There's always good reasons why it's, you're not ready to leave, okay? And I say ready to leave because I'm assuming that at some point you still might do it. Even if you choose to stay, don't shame yourself. The key words are always, it's understandable. It's no matter what your, your reaction here to the situation. If you can't leave, it's understandable that you can't leave. There's work you can do, and I offer that in the book. I offer help to get you to a point where you can leave. But please don't shame yourself if you're not able to leave. Okay. Perfect way to end it. Okay. Thank you so much, Beverly. We're um, going to be out of time in about a minute, but um, this has been so great. Thank you for sharing all this information. Thank you for this excellent, excellent book. Um, we really, I really appreciate having you today. Well, I appreciate being on the show. It was great. Okay, good. <laughs> then it's mutual. Okay. okay, have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Um, so we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.